Welcome to Asking for a Friend with me, your host, Katrina Buffard. I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. And this podcast covers any and every topic relating to sex, intimacy, or relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. This season of Asking for a Friend is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. For a lovely little discount, stay tuned until the end of this episode. Attachment theory relates to the type of attachments we have to our primary caregivers growing up, most often our parents, and this can predict what sort of relationship dynamic we might experience as adults. So today I'm speaking to a world-leading voice in this, Dr. Stan Tatkin. He's a therapist, teacher, author, researcher, and he developed a psychological theory called PACT, a psychobiological approach to couples therapy. He has written numerous best-selling books, and I often recommend them to my clients and colleagues. And this is a particularly enlightening conversation if you want to understand yourself better in the dynamic of your relationship. Where do I even start? I think firstly is that I, I, I feel as a, as a bit of an attachment theory nerd, as I like to think of myself, I feel like I'm getting to speak to one of the, the people up there um on attachment theory but especially because the way you speak about attachment theory is so relatable and the first time i listened to um your brain on love one of your many books i was just struck by how easy it was to understand this psychological theory and i guess for me i've been studying this for many years and i use it predominantly with most of my clients but we obviously need to talk a little bit about what attachment theory is and, and what it looks like in childhood versus adulthood. So could we dive straight in and, and talk about that? Sure. sure, absolutely. So attachment theory began in the 50s, and it was an answer basically to drive theory, which was the predominant theory in Europe. Uh, and that's basically going, going back to Freud, right? The, that were driven by uh, animal desires for food, for uh, for sex, uh, you know, reproduction, and so on. Uh, and then we found through animal studies, through child studies, and and now years later through uh, fMRIs and, uh, uh, and 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 other technology, um, and along with frame analysis, digital frame analysis, that were we're driven by the need to bond to at least one person. We're born dependent, we're born still attached uh, in a sense, uh, umbilically, psychologically to a caregiver, to an adult who uh, allows us to survive infancy. And that dependency relationship is, uh, is predicated on the infant's experience of safety and security. That safety and security is what drives the infant or allows the infant to move towards developing. That takes internal resources. Now, if an infant is preoccupied or is, uh, is um, uh, not feeling safe or secure, not only uh, physiologically may the infant not survive, but also psychologically, uh, the infant needs to have that external 
other uh, to be able to regulate its body, regulate its uh, systems. And if that doesn't happen, the child may survive, but development stops. So the more insecure we are as children, the less able we are to deal with the slings and arrows of childhood, of, of, uh, of even adulthood. And that is because we're under-resourced. We're under-resourced because we are uh, too anxious, too worried that our secure base, people we depend on, are not there in the way that we need in order to, uh, to feel um, able to move around in the world, to explore the world while feeling safe at the same time. So basically, attachment, safety, and security, a felt sense of safety and security. It's not objective. That then goes into adulthood because we are, after all, re relationship animals. We are uh, uh, herd animals that pair bond in herds, and we pair bond in the very beginning, and we do that throughout life. If we do not correct that felt sense of safety and security, we're going to remember and we're going to protect ourselves according to what we think will happen if we depend on somebody. And that's in a nutshell what it is. It's all about interdependency, dependency, and what will happen when I do that, uh, I remember. I will uh, have to take care of the other person and I won't be taken care of. I will have my freedoms taken from me and I won't be able to move out in the world and be autonomous. Um, I will uh, 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 be told that I must cling uh, in order to take care of a parent or I will get rejected and abandoned. Um, these are all the things that we know happen in insecure cultures, family cultures that are organized around the self and not organized or centered around relationship. So when we think of secure uh, relationships, we're talking about a culture that puts relationship first and that uh, in adulthood is one that would be fully collaborative and cooperative, one that would be fair and just, one that would be uh, related in the sense that uh, I care more about the integrity of our relationship than your performance, your appearance, or whether you do this or that for me. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really fascinating. I'm, you know, thinking about that security and safety and connection, especially as children. I'm I'm thinking about a lot of studies that were done on orphans in Eastern Europe um, just yes. after the Second World War. And I think yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's, you know, those studies, I mean, one, they would never pass ethical ethical boards nowadays. But for, for my listeners who don't know about them, um, the, when they studied toddlers who came from these orphanages, if the toddlers had almost no contact outside of having nappies changed and being fed, a lot of the toddlers actually, or the kids actually died. There was... Yeah. There was no connection, there was no security, there was no safety, there was no bond or attachment that was formed. And if that doesn't speak volumes, you actually mentioned how we don't survive without it. I imagine then not having that as a child and surviving it would really be very detrimental to one's psyche as you grow up. Yes. Well, even in Romania, the, the Romanian babies weren't rocked. Uh, they they ha had impoverished infancies. And yeah, uh, those who didn't die from failure to thrive 
um, were uh, later on seen as um, forever uh, damaged in, in terms of brain development because of the lack of eye-to-eye, skin-to-skin, face-to-face contact. And, and the vestibular system, which is our balancing system, gets set with rocking. So these children would uh, rock um, in, you know, and bang their heads just like autistic kids uh, uh, in order to self-soothe. And they looked, if they were 15, they looked eight. If they were 20, they looked 15. Uh, and, um, and this is true, by the way, of all primates, right? We're human primates. And so uh, that's why I say this was studied not only with human beings, but also with primates. Uh, we now know it's not rocket science that uh, babies will always adapt to the environment they're born into. It's not a personality issue. It's not right or wrong, good or bad. It is simply... Uh, nature's way of allowing the species to continue. We adapt and uh, and insecure attachment is a form of adaptation. It's not a personality problem. Mm, absolutely. I, I think that's a very, very valid point. It's a, it's a form of adaptation. So if we talk about insecure attachment versus secure attachment, what would they look like? And I, I think you have a beautiful way of describing this, obviously, and that makes it so relatable, which is the way of the anchor in the island. How could we describe the secure versus the insecure um, in in a way that that my listeners will understand? Secures are are going through an entire developmental trajectory with at least one parent who is fully present and available, interested in the baby child's mind uh, and uh, and is fully resourced, right? And so, so that relationship is relatively free from anxiety uh, uh, over whether I separate too much from you or if I, if I want to cling to you. I don't get punished for clinging. I don't get punished for separating. I get supported for both. And that gives me a sense of safety in the world, a sense of myself, a sense of uh, having someone that I can run to if I need to, in my head at least. And that makes me more resilient, which means that I'm able to deal with the vicissitudes of life without becoming uh, too under-resourced where I cannot move forward. Now, if I am less than that, I am more burdened. I'm more burdened by anxieties and fear, many of which I'm not even aware of, but it keeps me up at night. It makes me hesitate in relationships. And I, uh, I am not as resourced, especially in the area of relationship, although it bleeds into work as well. And to the degree I feel insecure, I'm either on one side of insecurity or the other side. So we have secure, even though we're imagining here something that may not be as, that accurate. It's a linear thing. It's really very circular, but it's linear right now. So we have secure in the middle. Um, that would be an anchor. We just made it nautical to be cute. <laughs> anchor in the middle. And and I, um, as an anchor, I get along with a wide variety of people. I, uh, I you know, I can't just be satisfied with playing checkers. I must play chess. I, I'm moving towards complexity. I have a good sense of humor. I rebound easily, uh, recover easily. I don't give up on tasks or on people. I do look for 
healthy self-entitlements, like good relationships that are reciprocal, good work. I reach for a higher bar. I don't reach for a lower bar and so on. So that's if I'm secure. Uh, if I am insecure, but on the clinging side, let's divide this into, into a clinging defense posture and a distancing defense posture. If I'm on the clinging side, we might call me a wave um, or wave-ish, depending on how much. And I am afraid of abandonment. I'm sensitive to any kind of withdrawal when I, when I start to feel that you're permanent in my life. And now I become aware of my own ambivalence. When you come near me, I don't know whether I really want to be with you, but I am really preoccupied with you not wanting to be with me. And that maybe you don't think I'm handsome enough, or you don't love me still, or you think someone else is better. I become super sensitive to any signs that you're not paying attention to me, that you're there, but not there. And I start to get clingy. And I also do something that I experienced in childhood. I am, uh, I get angry when I feel that, uh, that you're not proving to me that you want me and love me. And so I keep testing you. And that testing you puts a, a stress on you that makes you reject me. Now, that is exactly what I'm afraid of. And yet, I am rejecting you. Um, and I'm also afraid of punishment because I got a lot of that as a child. And I also tend to punish you. So there are several features of a wave. One is I'm allergic to hope. As soon as I hope, I get anxious that something is going to happen. I'm going to lose. And so I sabotage myself. I'm negativistic, which means that I push away positive things as soon as I feel that you're loving towards me. I may be snarky, sarcastic, whatever. I do that because I really want you. But because I'm so afraid that um, I'm, I'm not going to have you and I'm such a burden and I'm such a pain in the butt, I'm too needy. That's what I think. You're going to reject me. Um, you're going to give up on me. I make it happen. Okay. So I had a parent that needed me to be small, dependent, clingy, didn't tolerate my separating or individuating, but also got irritated and annoyed and overwhelmed with me. And at times didn't pay attention, at times rejected me, uh, was overwhelmed and sent me away. I felt punished and angry. Okay. So that sets up that whole, that whole fear thing. Again, it's fear, it's memory. If I'm on the distancing side, the opposite has happened. I can't cling. I'm discouraged from neediness. I'm discouraged from attachment values. I'm in a family that puts a lot of emphasis on performance and appearance on self. And I get it that as long as I get approval, as long as I do what I'm, I'm supposed to do, I will feel loved, but I am alone. I, on an attachment level, I don't get a lot of face-to-face, eye-to-eye, skin-to-skin. I get a lot of criticism, judgmental uh, uh, behavior. Um, I am a performance animal. I feel used, exploited. I spend too much time alone and I get acclimated to it. I am afraid of losing my independence, myself, my stuff. When I get involved with you, I'm afraid you're going you're gonna to take what's mine. And so I distance. I devalue attachment uh, uh, values. I, I'm anti-needy. Um, I like it so much when you go away. I know that's not nice. But, you know, I feel relief because uh, more than anybody else on this spectrum, 
I feel too much interpersonal stress because I'm always having to perform. I'm always having to stay out of trouble. I'm always having to hide who I really am. And that's exhausting. So I, in order to feel myself, I always have to go outside of our orbit um, uh, with, with you and uh, Katrina. So I'm, I'm secretive. I'm not forthcoming. I'm not as emotionally engaged. I'm not as engaged. And the closer we get, the less I'm into you. <laughs> you, could be, you could be lovely, gorgeous, and you are. It has nothing to do with that. It's predictable. Now I'm afraid that I don't have the space to be myself and to move about the way I wish. It's so interesting because in in hearing about these particular particular ways of being, these particular behaviors that are coming out of that adapted system, I, I hope that people are, are hearing themselves in this. I like to stay away from, from labels like commitment phobe because somebody, say, who is an island, who has that insecure attachment, is not phobic of commitment. They're actually fearful of what that commitment means. And I, I love that you highlighted when you were talking about the waves, those with a lot of anxiety around, you know, attachment and bonding. You you spoke about that fear. So much of this is coming from fear, fear of being abandoned. On both sides. On both sides, right? Yeah. Fear of being abandoned, fear of being rejected, fear of not being good enough, of not being worthy. So much fear. And I, I often see in my practice and talk to friends about it and have had to recognize in myself as well that we are often unaware of those fears and the same patterns of behavior will play out again and again and again in relationships and until we perhaps go and address them in a more formal setting like in therapy we struggle to recognize that the patterns are coming out of our own fear and not something external to us. That's right. Uh, this is, uh, again, we're memory animals. Everything we do is by memory. And so we're dealing with the memory of something that happened repeatedly a long time ago when we were smaller. And unfortunately, or fortunately, um, we're also energy conserved animals, which means we do the least amount necessary. And uh, that would include self-awareness and uh, becoming better. Uh, we don't become better unless we are in an enriched environment that interests us, but we really don't become better unless we suffer. Suffering is the great, uh, is the great uh, wisening agent uh, for us human beings. And, uh, uh, and so many of us will actually just be who we are as what we've known and seen and experienced, nothing greater than that. Well, others of us will have to go through crises uh, and have to learn about ourselves and have to override some of these uh, uh, memories and impulses in order to have a, a better union. Uh, with others as we get older, right? And that's doable, uh, but it takes understanding how how two-person systems actually work. Um, they don't work the same as they do in infancy or in childhood. Um, symmetrical uh, uh, unions in a free society are based on conditions, based on terms, based on equal power and equal authority, uh, based on uh, a, a co-creation of what the relationship is and shall be uh, in what it means. That's the way out of this thing, uh, is rethinking when we are in a union, uh, uh, why we're doing it and what our jobs are 
and that uh, our fears are our fears. Our behavior, though, is what counts. And in uh, love relationships, behavior is everything. It doesn't matter what we're afraid of. If we act in a way that is insecure functioning, the relationship won't last. And that's just pure and simple. Yeah. Absolutely. And if I think if we're playing, you know, if the, the dynamic that plays out between us, if it if it's just kind of feeding each other's fears constantly, you know, yes. a lovely way of for me of, of always thinking about the island versus the wave is the island is is the person who's the, the wave is the person who's scared to lose their partner and the, the island is the person who's scared to lose themselves. That's and right. I, I always find that so helpful. And you touched on a little bit about the, the the change that can take place. And I think that that is important for people to recognize. I know that it's happened for me personally, and that's through my own therapy and through relationships, that your your style of attachment and the dynamic that plays out in a relationship can change. If you've been somebody who's who's experienced a lot of fear around intimacy and around losing yourself in that relationship, that can change. It's not, it's not stuck forever. It's not permanent in that way. But as you, as you pointed out earlier, these are, these are systems, these are adapted systems and it's memory. The, 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 the way that the body and the brain holds onto the trauma we've experienced as a child growing up is now playing out as adults. And we're using those maladaptive coping strategies from childhood as an adult in these romantic relationships. But right. I, I, I guess my, my question has come out of a lot of clients asking me this. So please be, please forgive me for having a little sneaky supervision right here. <laughs> okay. what, do you, what, do you, what do you tell people when they say, but I'm, I'm a bit of both, you know, I'm a little bit of a wave and I'm a little bit of an island, but actually I'm an anchor or I, oh no, I'm an anchor, but I sometimes am a wave. What, what would you say to people? It doesn't matter. Because um, all that we've talked about now is, is about attachment, which is an adaptation, which is simply uh, makes relating and makes uh, uh, interdependency more, more difficult on an emotional threat level. But it doesn't in the end matter. It doesn't matter whether I'm an island or a wave or a narcissist or a duck or a dog. If I want to be and reap the benefits of a union where we are mutual stakeholders, shareholders. We have the same things to gain, the same things to lose. We have each other's backs. We protect each other at all times. We agree on the big things and we get each other to do those things because our lives depend on it. That is ultimately what matters. It doesn't matter. Uh, if I am behaving in a way that is non-collaborative, non-cooperative, then in that moment, I'm not fit to be in a two-person system or on a team. If I'm operating in a, way, in a way that is unfair and unjust, that's also unwise because you are going to do the same thing right back to me. So imagine this. Imagine I put you and your partner in shackles, um, your, you know, the, the inner parts, your inner legs, right? And you had to move together or you would feel pain. You would understand immediately what I'm talking about interdependence. You would have to move together. You'd have to bargain, negotiate. You'd have to uh, work a whole new way to make sure you got somewhere and got things done. You would be able to move as two individual people, but also with one mind uh, because you are working together completely. 
That's what I'm talking about. If you were in my, my, let's say my armed forces, right? And I was your staff sergeant, I would say, I would look at you and say, you're not important. The person to your left and your right is more important than you. They're going to save your life. You're going to learn this or you're not going to be happy in my army. You're going to be scrubbing latrines and so on. Okay, you'll get it. And by the way, in those cultures, say what you will about them, those relationships last a lifetime. When people have to depend on each other for survival, all other things begin to fade away. The other are differences always. But there's nothing like survival, a reason why we interdepend to melt away a lot of other differences. And then we also start to do things together that make us fast friends. We have an attitude problem, uh, generally speaking, in the, in, the, in the area of family and in the area of coupling. Coupling and family are the only two areas where there is no set ethos of fairness and justice where there is no set ethos of how we do relationships in a way that allows for a collective um, uh, benefit and a collective protection. And this is well known and it's historic that whatever happens in these systems uh, creates uh, children that go out and do the same thing in society. And that's what we have with couples who are insecure that's an unfair culture that they came from. They lost, and now everyone pays for what happened to them. That's going to be a problem in adulthood because our happiness doesn't come from paybacks. Our happiness comes from working with others and uh, and and uh, and working in lockstep with others towards a common goal and a common need. Yeah, it's 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 cooperation or collaboration and not compliance more than anything not else. Compliance. No, because you and I are both generals. Mm. Um, uh, we have to uh, win, both of us, which means if we both have to win, you and I have to think differently and more quickly on how to create win-wins. But if we don't think we should, we'll take forever or we'll go to war. So war right this is something you you're really well known for is is talking about conflict in relationship and the effects of conflict in relationship yeah. a standard line i use with my clients you know i'm a i'm a sexologist and and people will come to me for sexual problems and i'll often say to the couples well how on earth are you going to make love if you're still at war so mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about conflict in relationships and and maybe mm -hmm. maybe we could touch on what Mm, how could I put this? How we can conflict in a helpful and healthy way, even <laughs> even if even if we struggle, even if we have in the past done things that are really unhelpful or unhealthy for the relationship. Well, one thing I think people should be aware of is that um, all people are annoying and difficult. There is no part, person who's that easy up close. All human primates are warlike, aggressive, self-centered, selfish, moody, fickle, opportunistic, always comparing and contrasting, always aware of what's missing, and xenophobic. What could possibly go wrong, yeah? And so if we understand that, uh, then we also have to look at rules of civilization, that in order for us to get along, we have to find where we agree 
and what we absolutely want in order to prosper and what we absolutely don't want, that would be, uh, that would be death for both of us. That's how we operate. We find the common good and we avoid the common bad. We think about what is the right thing to do when it's the hardest thing to do. And that's what you and I are going to do. So you and I are going to fight. I'm going to do something that's going to hurt you. Now, but we have a principle that if I do, I don't defend myself. I don't argue with you. I fix it. I make amends and I put something in place so it doesn't happen again. I take seriously your experience over my being right. That's how we get along. And that's how you do it with me. So we're going to have conflict. That's not the question. The question is how good are we at dealing with conflict to put fires out really fast so that we can get things accomplished and we can always move forward. What partners do is exactly what most human beings do. And that is they, uh, they shoot first, ask questions later. They rely on their perception, their memory, and their idea that their communication is accurate. And that's a fatal error. If we understand that we're mostly misunderstanding each other much of the time, that our memory is unreliable and our perceptions are fooling us, we might give each other more of a break and be more curious. Um, we also might uh, uh, think about what didn't work just a moment ago and put something in place so that when it happens again, we have something to prevent it. For instance, I do something uh, to you, Katrina, and, and it, it humiliates you. It makes you angry. You tell me this. I agree with you. That's bad for both of us. But I'll, I'm an automatic creature, so I'll do it again. So here's what I'll do. Katrina, as soon as I do anything like that, do you mind prompting me? And I swear I will yield immediately. I won't argue. I will change my attitude. I will apologize. I'll fix it. Would that be okay? That's how we do it. I'm, I'm just nodding along for the people can't see me, but I'm just nodding along and chuckling a little bit to myself. On uh, this past weekend, um, my partner and I were walking on a beach um, and having a conversation about something that had come up between us. And I, I said to him that he did something that had upset me. And, and I said, you know, is there, is there anything that I'm doing that's upsetting you at the moment? You know, it's, it's been a tough year with COVID and, you know, the economic situation in South Africa this last week has been particularly horrendous for South Africans with riots and things like that. But I, I said to him, I, he, said, he said to me, actually, when he said, uh, he said that I, I became quite critical um, or I do become quite critical uh, in particular contexts. And I, I said to him, I said, when I do that, would you please say to me, what is happening for you right now? Because you've become really critical of me and it's hard to, to be on the receiving end of that. I asked him to do that for me. And bless him. He, he said to me, like, he said, I don't know if I can do that. Like, that's really out of my character. And I said, I know, but for you to point out to me that I'm being critical will alert me to the fact that I'm, I'm not actually being a very nice person to be around. So it will make me conscious of what I'm bringing into this dynamic, even if yes. it's difficult for you to talk about it. And what you've just described is it made me laugh a little bit and think about it because even myself as a couples therapist, it's hard sometimes, you know, as, as a partner to recognize when we're at fault. And I like that you said at the very start of your explanation, you know, 
we're all annoying. We're all, you know, a little bit messed up. We, we're not even, but we're, everybody has baggage. Everybody has their problems. And I'm no different. I'm, I'm just a normal person at the end of the day. So it doesn't matter how long and hard I've studied this. And I'm sure you are the same. We all have our, our little our little things that we do that we we realize we could be doing differently that impact the other. And I think so much of it is about empathy, is about actually trying to put ourselves in our partner's shoes to understand what it might be like for them when we're in, you know, that space and, and that dynamic is playing out. I'd, I'd go even simpler than that because we're therapists. We tend to think a little bit differently. I think that, uh, that it's, it's, there's another way to think about it. I do something that bothers you. It doesn't matter whether I'm really doing it or not. It doesn't matter whether uh, um, other people don't react to it. What matters is you do. And we have an agreement uh, that we need to work together and we need to get along. If I am doing something that disturbs the peace or that hurts you, that's going to affect me. That's going to create a problem for me. Therefore, it's in my best interest to take that seriously uh, and to relieve you. Otherwise, I'm going to pay. So there's another way to look at it for those people who um, don't have the time or the energy or are not particularly good at putting themselves in the other person's shoes. You do it because it's going to be bad for you if you don't. I'm tied to you. Everything I do that affects you comes right back at me. There's no way around it. Therefore, if I treat you uh, in a certain way, or you feel I've treated you in a certain way, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what you think. It matters that you perceive it that way. Therefore, I apologize. Therefore, I stop doing that because it disturbs you. I'm going to want you to do the same thing. Unless I don't want you to do the same thing, in which case that's going to be a problem down the line because uh, <laughs> now I can't govern you. So there's another way to look at this, and that is having to do with we have a lot that we have to create together and a lot of uh, a lot of problems you and I have to solve. If we are constantly working on each other, we never solve any problem. We never get anything done. We don't create anything. We don't have any resources for anything else. The war can't be in the foxhole. So you and I have to work on problems, not each other. We have, to solve, uh, we have to solve dilemmas. And two minds can do that really well, really quickly. But as soon as you and I start working on each other, there's no, we're done for a long time. We're in a loop. This is war. We're not getting out anytime soon because we have to defend ourselves now. We have to. You're really looking then for kind of like, a win-win situation in actually addressing your own stuff, um, yes. which is impacting your partner, which is impacting you. So you, you we're, tra we're training each other by permission. Yeah, which that's a lovely way of putting it, actually. So then I'm I'm so wary that we're 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 closing in on our time, but I want <laughs> I want to touch on 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 how this plays out. Obviously, not the conflictual stuff, but the attachment stuff, the bonding stuff in sex and 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 sexual relationships. 
Oh, that's we could talk. We we can we have. have spent, should we have spent the rest of the, the most of the time speaking about it? <laughs> we, we can have a we can have a, a several day discussion on sex. Uh, that would be so lovely because there. Now we're getting into uh, uh, you know areas of psychobiology that are uh, there are so many different variations and very uh, variants of the, this problem that uh, it really deserves a, a good discussion. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. No, so so I think what what is often fascinating for me, and it's why I I love attachment theory so much, and I'm so fascinated by how the experiences that we have in childhood play out in our adult relationships, and sex is often not seen as one of the areas it might play out. I think on you know for for a lay lay person, I've always found it so incredibly fascinating that it can be a real a really clear indicator of where we're at and our body are a really clear indicator of our body where our body is at and because sex is ultimately about letting go if we're holding those memories and holding that trauma in our body while we don't connect childhood to sex a lot of the time there's so much connection that's happening there in our in our kind of the the the, the what's the word i wanted to use kind of in our control center up, upstairs because the brain is the most important sex organ. And I, yes. I guess then if we're thinking about those adapted systems, as we touched on earlier, what do they look like when they're playing out sexually between two people? On an attachment level, generally speaking, gen, and this is a generalization, uh, is that waves love to engage, love touch, generally speaking, love to talk. Um, they're uh, songbirds, generally speaking. Um, and, uh, and so for them, uh, touch is friendly, soothing, calming, containing. For islands, it is also, unless they are feeling performative or they experience uh, what they think is a demand, as soon as an island feels uh, uh, demanded upon, and that can be just internal, they shut down and they lose their libido. They actually start to build aversions in the near senses, touch, taste, smell, and near vision. In other words, the, the islands are caught in, a, in an illusion um, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of attraction and libido as having to do with attraction and libido rather than threat. Uh, um, we're threat animals and we're constantly picking up threat cues. Islands are picking up threat cues around having to perform, having to do something that's always for another person, never for them. And there are demands in which case they'll resist and they'll shut down. So there are predictive problems in, in the bedroom based on attachment. Um, there are predict there are also predictive uh, uh, elements having to do with how one uh, operates in terms of the brain. So for instance, if um, if I am performative at all, uh, I'm engaging inhibitory systems in the front area of the brain that do, that do not allow my body to operate properly. Therefore, I'll have erectile dysfunction, I may have a hard time lubricating, I'll have a hard time reaching orgasm. Parasympathetic tone is off, sympathetic tone is off, and, and gets in the way of everything. Add to that the interactions that we have 
um, are the, basically the problems in all relationships. The problems aren't about sex, money, kids, messiness, or anything like that. The problems actually come down to when you and I are under stress, the manner in which we interact is threatening, always. And I can prove that. In bed, it's the same kind of interaction. It's just happening more intensely, and it's happening with less talk, more nonverbal. Therefore, the chances of you and I misunderstanding each other and injuring each other during sex is incredibly high. Um, and that we won't even know what we've done is very high and that we won't repair it is extremely high. So it's one of the areas that uh, uh, because there's so much contact maintenance and proximity seeking that triggers a lot of attachment uh, uh, injuries, but it's air bound. People are, are not talking, communicating, and their understanding of sex is, I find, way, way off often performative, often comparing and contrasting to one once upon a time to now. People aren't making love. They aren't present. They aren't curious. They aren't really getting to know each other. Uh, and that, uh, that I find time and time again when I stage bedroom scenes uh, is what's happening uh, each and every time. Uh, it's not what we think uh, uh, with sex. It's far more nuanced, and sometimes it does reach into childhood, where um, here's another thing about uh, islands and certain sex addicts, if they're really, really addicts, is that they auto-regulate. Auto-regulation is uh, a self-stimulation, self-soothing without you. So basically, when I have sex, I'm masturbating. I'm not really present. You're an object. And that uh, that seals me off from being able to be engaged, but also makes you feel like an object. It makes you feel like I'm not here and not attended to. Uh, uh, it makes you feel like you could be anybody. So there's that other factor too, and that's an arousal issue. That's a that has to do with arousal systems. So there's we're talking. I'd love to talk to you more about this one day. We're talking about all these different uh, parts, moving parts that are operating separately and together that are creating an illusion um, that I don't have a sex drive, I'm not attracted to you, that I don't really feel that way, that all the things that we, all the shit we make up um, is going on in this area of sex because we have too many messages about, uh, about sex. There's nothing natural about it. And I think that the function of sex can change so much when there's attachment injury, when there's the trauma, when there's, as you said, you know, it, the 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 reasons behind having sex. It's it's almost quite damaging. It's dangerous, and sex as doesn't become safe anymore. As your partner, it's my job uh, um, to heal those traumas with you. It's it's your job to do that with me you're in my care. I'm supposed to be an expert on you. Mm. I'm supposed to always be trying to get to know you and be curious about you. But that's not what most people think they should do. And that's why they get into trouble. Um, one of the things that's a problem that's part of nature, because we're energy conserved animals, is we automate everything. So you and I, in the beginning, are fresh and new. All oars are in the water. I want to get to know you. I'm really present and attentive. And then I automate you. 
I think I know you and I turn my attention to other things and I stop paying attention. Around that time, I start to think you're family, which is another mistake. You're not family. You're a stranger. You will always be a stranger that I'm trying to get to know. And if I don't think that way, I will stop looking. I will literally carry around a picture of your face. I won't be looking at it. So here we have an intimacy issue of being in real time and, and being in, in a, a situation where we're constantly focused on each other as a way to be curious and to know each other. That to me is real love. And that is exciting. And that's how we bring novelty into the picture. Otherwise, we're just automatic, reflexive, walking around mindlessly, thinking we're doing things, but we're just doing them by memory. And that's, that's again, the human condition. That's not waves or anchors. That's all people, all people. Mm, that's something I think people don't actually accept and normalize enough. And that is where the problems come up in relationships is when we expect it to be, to just, I it's mean. science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Expect it to just happen. But for, for me, the, the word that really cropped up and that I use all the time, I'm sure my clients are so sick and tired of hearing me use it, but it's the word curiosity. I think we have to continuously be curious. It's the cornerstone of, of, of strong relationships is being curious, is being open to learning and discovering together and about yourself and about the other. And I kind of say to any of my new clients that, that walk through my door and I, I kind of think this way about my partner that I will always learn more and more and more and more about you throughout life or throughout our time in therapy because there's always something more to learn. But there needs to be that curiosity that, oh, I do think that there's more to learn. Oh, I want to learn more. I'm interested to find out more in order for there to be this more sustainable dynamic. And I, I did some I did some training, I ran some training on um, sexual desire discrepancies and, and differences in relationships for um, for healthcare professionals recently, and something that really surprised a lot of those professionals who attended was that it's not about the fact that she wants sex once a month and he wants sex five times a week. It's got nothing to do with that. It's about the difference between them that causes the distress and about the need to, to get them to refocus, to realize you don't have to have intercourse to be sexual, to, to get them to realize it's about intimacy, not sex, and so on and so forth. And, I, and so much of what you've touched on is speaking to that. And I was talking in that in that workshop about about the different types of behaviors or actions we might see playing out or the dynamics we see playing out. For example, you mentioned it a little earlier, somebody who's a bit more of an island or, or has those islandish, I like the way you said wavish earlier, who's islandish, they may seem to be very interested in the relationship and sex initially, but then as things start to develop and maybe intimacy starts to appear on the scene, they they shut that down. The libido actually starts to shut down in almost a protective way. It's that 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 neurobiology. I mean, I'm a bit of a neurobiology geek as well because I find it so incredibly fascinating. Because it's and I, I hope everybody who's listening will understand this. But the system that comes online is not a soothing one. It's a panic system. It it yes. it says danger, danger, threat, abort, mission. This is not a safe space for me to be in. Rather than that soothing 
lustful, exciting, curious space that we need to come online when it comes to sex. Yes, but that has to be midwife by both people. And what happens when people are uh, in disagreement and their interactions are poor, in other words, the, uh, the way they do business is bad, um, they're going to create an effect that that becomes more and more extreme. So it seems like one person wants it all the time, and the other person doesn't want it any time. That's an effect. It's not real. And uh, it usually isn't. And so what people have to understand is that things are hardly ever what they seem, especially with the human. Uh, and that people are not doing these things purposely. They're doing them automatically and reflexively and at lightning speeds, um, faster than thought. Um, uh, people have to understand that uh, that real time is way too fast. And we mostly don't know what we're doing or why. And when pressed, we'll make it up. We'll just make things up. Uh, and here's the other thing. This is true. Um, I'm wondering uh, why I'm unhappy. I'm, I, I'm not happy. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I know why. It's you. <laughs> That's the other thing all human beings will do. Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, we create our narratives around our own interests, always. Our own self-protection, always. And we cherry pick information according to confirmation bias. We all do that. Therefore, when you hear people saying, I know what you're going to do, and I, I know you, and uh, uh, you're never going to do this, um, that is a way all human beings um, not only are lazy, but also make the world a solid place. Because if we actually were curious and didn't know, we'd be in that state all the time uh, where we have to expend energy. It's energy conserving for me to go, I already know what you're going to do. Hmm. Hmm. It, and I'm not. No, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm sitting here going, yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. Such, such a valid yeah. point. Knowledge, knowledge uh, conserves energy. I already know the world is flat. Nothing <laughs> you tell me. Anything. So there's, I guess, you know, in, in bringing this conversation to an end, although I, I do think we should continue talking about <laughs> sex at some stage. I mean, do you and Tra Tracy's your wife? So just in case yeah. anybody didn't know that, sorry, I was about to say, do you and Tracy, but I need to caveat that. Do you do you and Tracy fight? Are you normal too? Can we just explain to people that even you, who's an expert in this, you might also yes. experience these concerns? Yes. Yes, we're uh, we're just as annoying. I'm probably more than she, um, uh, and uh, but we're we, you know, we practice this. We have to because we teach it. But but we but we practice this, um, um, you know, and uh, and it's not easy. But it is the only way to to have a happy life and happy relationship. There is no other way. So. We practice this and we are, we're really good with each other, but we annoy the hell out of each other at times. Um, you know, sometimes she'll tell me what uh, uh, she'll tell me what to do. And we agree we're each other's boss. And I'll just, in, you know, even in public, I just go like this and then she'll go <laughs> and I'll do it. We don't have to smile. It's just that we do it. Uh, and and. It's so our 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 fights are often much more playful, and and it's just like that. We take care of it immediately. We don't remember our fights. But that is because, uh, because we that take, is because you're we playful, right? We also fix it right away. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, she'll tell she'll tell me, you know, uh, that really embarrassed me. Uh, I'm 
I'm really sorry. Do you want me to do something? Do you want me to? No, no, just leave it alone. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, and so, so we tell each other immediately, we fix it immediately, and then we move forward. Mm. Mm. If something repeats, then we put something in place for the next time. Mm. Um, because we both want a, uh, an easy relationship, not one where we're smiling all the time, mm. but that it's easy. Um, when, when I obsess and I, and I, I beat a dead horse cause I'm still angry about something. And she knows this, she redirects my attention like a little boy, you know, um, what do you think of that place over there? I know exactly what she's doing and I cooperate and I go with it because it's also in my best interest to get off the subject. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of this has to do with being good handlers of each other. She knows the animal she's with but also that I'm cooperating and that she's cooperating with me when I limit or push her by agreement because we have the same things at stake. Mm. And that's always held in mind. And it's need, the need for the win-win, not the lose-lose. If, if, if she loses, I'm going to lose. Mm. If, she, if I lose, she's going to lose. She knows this. And so we can't afford that because it takes too much time and it causes us to constantly look backwards and litigate the past. We don't want to do that. Mm. So no, no deal. How about if we do this? How about if I throw this in? How about if I make a good uh, right for you? Do you come to my party with people you don't like? I'll do this for you and I'll do this for you. What then? But you can't complain. Okay. (laughs) Deal? Deal. Okay. Nothing to look back on. We both are on board. Mm. You, you you make it sound so simple and easy, but as you and I know, as couples therapists, relationships are not simple and easy. It requires hard work and effort. And so if, if you could only impart one bit of wisdom for yeah. people um, for, for the rest of your life, you could only impart one bit, what would it be? If you look around and look throughout history, there's only one thing that's ever worked that isn't a, a dictatorship or a slavery situation. And that is people agreeing on what they want to enhance their lives and what they are afraid of and keep away that will kill them, rob them of their happiness or safety. When, when faced with this, all people will do it because they must in order to survive together. It's not a luxury. This is something we've known forever. For some reason, um, uh, it's lost on us today. We think that we can afford to be uh, one-person systems. But if you're in a union, it does not work. You cannot do it that way. It just will never work. And life will just keep proving it to you. Mm. So if, if you were to advise my listeners of which of your books they should read first, which one would it be? <laughs> I, you know, I like We Do. Uh, we Do is the latest one. I'm working and finishing another one uh, right now, which is which is broken down by complaints. Oh, great. Compl- oh, that sounds so interesting. It sounds so interesting. Um, and, uh, and so people can thumb through it and find their complaint. Uh, but this, but we do is a really good handbook for, for two people to read. Um, and then come to our website, you know, thepackedinstitute.com and sign up for a couple retreat. And if you're a, a clinician, sign up for training. We do uh, that all over the world. And especially now during during the pandemic, people have more access or, or people, are, let me say, people are accessing online um, resources more and more. So hugely encourage that. So thank you for your time, your wisdom. I've learned oh, you're so lovely. much. Was, 
uh, you're fun to talk with and, uh, and I, I can't wait to find out more about you. Oh, thanks, Stan. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And um, like, yeah, I could have, I should have brought sex in much earlier. I suppose we could talk about it. That's my favorite topic, but talk about it for a very, very long time. But I, I feel, I feel so lucky doing this. I feel like I get one-on-one personal supervision, therapy, education, training, all for the purposes of sharing it with, with um, the general public. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're delightful. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. This episode was sponsored by Desir. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FOR A FRIEND.